Hello and welcome to The Widow Podcast. I am your host, Karen Sutton, The Widow Coach. I am a widow, a mum, a health coach, a life coach and grief coach. I want to help you see that you really can create something truly meaningful after loss. You have everything you need within you and I want to help you find it so you can see how capable and amazing you really are. Helping you find a more positive way through your grief. Hello and welcome back to The Widow Podcast. I am joined today by the lovely Emma Gray. Emma is a widow, a former end-of-life solicitor, trainee counsellor, mum to two girls, person behind rainbow hunting and a wannabe author. (laughs) So Emma, hello, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you very much for asking me on. That's quite a mouthful for you to <laughs> I had to write it down. I was like, I'm never going to remember all of that. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure we'll touch on all of it as, as well as we, we talk. But before we kind of do get into all of that, uh, do you want to tell us a little bit more about your husband, Simon, and what happened to him and, and how and when he died? Yeah, sure. So um, my husband was an officer in the Royal Marines. Um, we'd met when he was in training um, so we've been together for really quite a long time and um, we had two girls together um, and then sadly in 2013 despite the fact that he'd been to Afghanistan and had various jobs around the world and all the rest of it um, he ended up being diagnosed with cancer at home in December 2013 and um, we knew that things were bad and it took quite a long time to actually get him diagnosed which was frustrating Mm. um but actually we did some investigations and I don't think the result would have been any different because it was quite advanced by the time he got diagnosed so he and I knew that it was terminal from day one um but um he figured that his body was his job and I Mm. guess I guess in hindsight he was in quite a lot of denial to begin with you know like Mm. I'll beat this I'll smash it I'll get back to being a Royal Marine it'll all be great Mm -hmm. and he'd never known what else he wanted to be other than a Royal Marine as well Mm -hmm. his job gave him huge thing to live for and thing to keep going for really towards the end of his life Mm -hmm. um and um so they then diagnosed him in December 2013 as having esophageal cancer but he also had seedlings of cancer all over the lining of his stomach so they would never have got it all out um a patch by his heart um and um in the lymph nodes next to his primary tumor as well um, so they gave us um the option that he could have chemotherapy but the aim of the chemotherapy was to stop it and so the aim was never to even shrink it back mm-hmm. um and he faced it as he did with everything in his life with optimism and strength mm. and by the end of it all they were stunned because it had actually shrunk his esophagus back to um, kind of almost a normal, he never quite ate properly again, mm-hmm. but almost a normal sized esophagus again. So they then gave him consolidation radiotherapy. Um, and we then had a bit of a bucket list mm-hmm. where we could do some time with the kids and do some fun things. 
And then in the summer of 2016, he sadly died. But before he died, we knew it was getting worse. And so they challenged him with the same chemotherapy he had before. Mm. Um, He had more radiotherapy, this time interior radiotherapy, because they figured everything had already been sapped Mm. a lot. And they tried him on some antibody drugs. Mm -hmm. He literally did everything he possibly could. And every day was a bonus. Every day was an extra day he had with the children and stuff like that so when he died in July 2016 the girls were six and eight years old wow and and did he die at home uh so that was a really interesting one actually Mm. he initially said that yes he 100% wanted to die at home Mm. um but um we had the most amazing hospice nurse from a local charity called um hospice care down Mm. in the southwest and uh And I went to, I see her occasionally instead of having my own therapy because it was just easier logistically. And I went to chat to her one day towards the end and I was like, right, so he's going to die at home. And I've decided that um, one of my worst fears is that he's going to die while I'm asleep. Um, So if that happens, I'm going to say this to the kids, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're going to do the other. And she just stopped me and she just went, Emma, if the kids can't wake you up one Sunday morning, what are they going to remember from about their dad and I was like oh god I've never thought about that and I Mm. said to Simon I don't really want you dying at home but it's your choice and it's really bizarre Mm. because I found that for us life was revolving around him and his wishes okay suddenly I was like you know what there's a whole family of us and Mm. and and but I didn't want to he had to be the one to make decision yeah I said you know this is the story I've had with the hospice nurse this is what she said and typical bloke it took him at least a week or so and he was like oh I've had an idea I think I'd rather stay in the hospice (laughs) great plan right (laughs) Um, so yeah he had a lovely garden room in the hospice and that's where he died wow so it sounds like you had some quite sort of honest and open conversations about his end of life and and what he wanted and what you wanted that to look like and how you would I guess support each other through it how I mean how do you go about having those conversations with somebody did you I mean for you guys was it a natural thing or was it something you had to to work towards having it's really interesting because if you'd asked the me while he was still alive yeah I would have had a different answer I would have said well I'm an end-of-life solicitor I have to do this all the time it's really Mm. really important everyone's got to have these conversations we've just got to man up and have them Mm. and my husband's in the military so therefore we'd always had our will up to date you know we changed it when we had the kids and all the rest of it so we we kind of lived with an expectation that something horrendous might actually Mm. die at any point in time but if you ask the me now Mm. I think there's still more conversations we didn't have and still things that I wasn't strong enough to ask him about and I wish I had been so were you conscious at the time that you wanted to have those conversations but you you pushed them to one side I wasn't consciously aware of it because I might have been a bit stronger mm. but subconsciously I was I knew that there was a niggle I mean like the perfect example is I wanted to talk to him more about the children and what his hopes and dreams were for the kids and stuff like that and we talked about it a little bit mm. but he did struggle with the concept of us moving on without him and so to protect him I didn't have those conversations because I didn't want to upset him and I wish now that I had yeah. um 
but he did a huge amount to ensure that people didn't forget him I and mean, the preparation he put into his end of life was amazing oh really mm. so did that was that guided by you because of your experience yeah <laughs> I'm quite bossy can you tell <laughs> see it's interesting isn't it when you've got that insight and knowledge but so many people haven't mm. and you know and I speak to a lot of people that have obviously nursed their, their husbands through these terminal illnesses and you know then they die and then you you're you're trying to recreate something you know for you afterwards but things do come up don't they and, and there's these these are all these unanswered questions and all these conversations and there's a there's a lot of guilt and heaviness around these mm. things of, of not having them. Um, but it's difficult because sometimes the, the person dying doesn't want to have the conversations, do they? Uh, you know, a lot of times I speak to people and they say they just didn't want to accept that they were going to die and to, and to face that. And, and what do you do in those situations? You know, it's hard, isn't it? Because you can't force someone, I suppose, to talk about something that they, they don't want to talk about. But... In, in terms of what, what Simon did and, and how he helped you and the conversations you had, what do you think were the, the most helpful for you in terms of helping you in your grief after Simon died? I have not sure about what was mm. most helpful. And mm. the help I did get, I got some help from the Royal Marines. Yes. Yes. They, um, they um, helped with the funeral. Um, mm. So it was almost like I was the CEO and they were the people making it happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was just amazing to be the one who felt in control of the funeral and felt in mm-hmm. control of it all, but actually to have the nitty gritty done by someone else. Mm. That was really, really, really helpful. Mm. Um, um, and then I found a lot of the little things helpful. Um, so the friends who were really practical, not just I'll make you a meal, but by the way, what food do your kids eat? Yes. The number of people who made me meals, but the kids actually didn't like it. Yeah. Then I felt guilty throwing it away and mm. it was really awkward. Um, and they did that a lot when Simon was alive as well, because of course he had trouble eating. And then mm. it was like, oh, I'll make you guys a meal. And But the most helpful was someone who made cookies. My gosh, I think I ate most of them, but Simon <laughs> loved them too. Cookies and cake, that was great. Um, but also some of the really practical things like mowing the lawn, yeah. cleaning the gutters. Yes. Um, the kind of jobs that Simon used to do that mm. I immediately after he died, I got so cross when I was having to do the boy jobs. Yes. Um, and, and for me, there weren't many boy jobs because he was in the forces and I was pretty much a single parent a lot of the time anyway. Yeah. So I was pretty good. But um, yeah, I got quite frustrated with some of those. And then I have to say, I mean, I know that you're a coach and mm. I'm trained to be a counsellor, but I have to say, sometimes you just need external help. Mm. Um, and I have had a lot of counselling and mm. and that has been a huge help. Um, yeah, yeah. I think it is. I think it's really important that we find something that helps support us, that we can find someone that we connect with, that we can, you know, share our truth with, because as lovely as a family and friends are, I think there's that element of sometimes we don't feel comfortable sharing everything that goes on in our heads with them because people don't understand. Also, we all have that sort of 
desire to to fix someone don't we to make it better to find that silver lining and I get it you you know like I'm as guilty of it as the next person but when you find someone that you can just speak to from the heart without worrying that they're going to say something (laughs) that might trigger something within you or makes you withdraw because you just go oh do you know what I can't be bothered they don't get it they're just trying to make me feel better and 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 just make sense of your thoughts because like you I, I had counseling after my husband died because there's stuff that goes on isn't there in your head that makes you feel deeply uncomfortable and the thoughts and the feelings that you have even towards your friends and family you, you know these people that are really really being kind of you know and you have all these mixed feelings and you're like oh god I'm a really bad person I can't be, I can't be feeling like this and just to go somewhere and share all that with someone that's neutral it's it it just it's priceless isn't it really in in our journeys yeah um I also found that I was quite an empath and I hadn't Mm. realized how much of an empath I was Mm. so if I was talking to friends or family I was so aware of what I was saying was landing with them and how Mm. upset they were getting yes I felt like I was almost counseling my friends and family when I was telling them what was going on and people felt guilty when they wanted to open up their Mm. issues because in Mm. comparison they thought they were small and I used to say no that's huge for you yeah definitely yeah you're treated differently aren't you Mm. um and I also found it hard I don't know about you but I found it hard because it it almost felt like nobody really grieved in front of me like that they kind of there was this kind of respect almost of my grief and that it was the biggest grief and and no and in the end I I almost felt quite lonely in my grief because I was like am I the only person grieving my husband is anyone else kind of apart from his mum but event I remember one day my sister kind of just broke down and cried and she was like I'm so sorry I'm so sorry I just miss him so much and it really hurts and see and I was like oh my god it's such a relief you you know like share this with me because I was starting to feel like nobody else was feeling this loss um, and I was the only one in that so you're right you know sometimes having people just share what's going on for them and their normality and their feelings it's 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 really interesting actually because two things came to mind for me when you were saying that Mm. um and um um one of them is that when people used to cry in front of me I felt like I had to give them permission I'm like please do cry because actually it shows me how much he meant to you and I love that so please do cry because I don't mind you crying and actually I think tears are really brave yeah so because that's showing me your emotions and I think that's really brave yeah definitely Um, and the other thing that came to mind to me which is really interesting but because Mm. he was in the military I had this like hierarchy of death thing in my head and Mm. I think families often have it within a family like what feels the worst the mother the child the sibling the Mm. spouse like what feels the worst Mm. and but in the military there's this whole thing of on the battlefield off the battlefield cancer illness suicide you know and Mm. and because they were serving for their country and they were blown up by an IED does that make it worse than a car accident at home Mm. and I wasn't until the lockdown and lockdown was huge for me in so many ways, but it wasn't until lockdown I reconnected with a part of the Royal Marines charity called the RMA, mm-hmm. Royal Marines Association. And a guy there said to me, he was like, there is no hierarchy in death. No. And I was like, that's it. Mm-hmm. There is just no hierarchy. A death no. is death. And yeah. it's all rubbish. Yeah. 
you're right it's so true isn't it and we do seem to want to to sort of come up with this hierarchy of, of death and loss and who's worse off and and it's and it's kind of like it's understanding that your loss is the worst loss because it's yours mm. you know and their worst loss is their loss because it's theirs yeah. and and trying to kind of place everything in in this hierarchy you're either sort of diminishing minimizing somebody else's loss by placing yours higher or you're diminishing or minimizing your loss because you think yours is less than somebody else's and it's what does that even achieve (laughs) you still you know you're so you're right it's um but I think it's something we naturally do isn't it in in our losses so you've talked about kind of the things that helped you was there anything that you did after Simon died that on reflection maybe didn't help you or you know that we that our coping mechanisms oh yeah um <laughs> a classic until lockdown um so my default coping strategy it, throughout my whole life has been to keep busy mm. which is absolutely fine in the short term mm. but in the long term it's just not sustainable mm. and lockdown was an enforced full stop for me mm. and it was lovely yes <laughs> yeah yeah um, it was just what I needed. I mean, it wasn't lovely. It totally had its moments. I worried about my parents and mm. all the rest of it. But but there were aspects of it that were bliss. Yes. Do you know what? It's funny, isn't it? I, I mean, for me, I found the first one was horrendous. I just, I, it's almost like I went backwards in, in my grief. Mm. Um, I felt very alone and isolated. And as for homeschooling, <laughs> that, didn't, that just hit me over the edge. Um, but almost kind of adapted to it and over time started to appreciate it for for being able to slow down a little bit you know and not have the the expectation that is placed on you from all these external sources all the time um and maybe didn't really fully make the most of it in that first lockdown but certainly in the second and third that you know it was like actually this is okay. And then, then coming out of it and having to readjust, there's almost now a sense of, oh, can we do, can we just do that for a couple of weeks? <laughs> just to take all those pressures and those expectations away because it does, you, you know, and it, it forces you to stop and take notice, doesn't it? Which isn't a bad thing. So when you, when you sort of say you, you know, your default mechanism is to keep busy. What did you do? Throw yourself into work, socialising? Yeah, so initially I threw myself into doing his probate. So I thought that being a private client solicitor, I would like go straight back to work. Mm, mm, like I just yes. thought that me, you know, I knew that I liked to keep busy and I thought that's what I'd do. Um, but actually I realised that I quite enjoyed being with kids and having Mm. a bit of time off and all the rest of it so I threw myself into sorting out his probate Mm. um, which I did within six months quite happily did got all the legal stuff all done and Mm. everything um and then in the summer of 2017 I actually went away on a massive road trip with the kids Wow. And my thought process through it was just hysterical because I initially started off going totally don't want to be a lawyer, don't want to go back to 
of being like, maybe I'd just get a job in Gap or something. Yes, <laughs> yeah, that's never yeah. going to entertain me. And actually the hours might not suit childcare. And then uh, coming full circle, well, I'll just go back to work. And so then I found I went back to work, hmm. but my heart was never in it in quite the same way. And yeah. I got as high as I could be without being a partner. And I didn't want to be a partner for a number of reasons. Hmm. I moved to be closer to the kids and closer to home. But then that wasn't quite what I anticipated it would be either. And I felt that I was doing two jobs badly. The kids only had me at home. Mm. And so I didn't feel like I was doing that right. And then work, most of my colleagues were full time. Mm. There was a handful that were part time and those that were part time worked more hours than I did. So I really struggled with the balance of that. Yeah. And I loved my clients. So I probably put far too much effort into the clients and not enough into the legal work. Um, And um, yeah, so in, oh gosh, my brain's not gonna be able to work it out. But the autumn before lockdown, I handed in my notice and Mm. they didn't want me to go. Mm. And so I said, well, I'm happy to go on sabbatical because that suits me because it gives me the option. I've got a job to come back to if I decide Mm. that's what I want to do. Hugely grateful. Thank you very much. But if I decide I don't want to come back, I don't want to have to work a notice period. Mm. So we agreed I'd work my contracted notice period so I could properly hand over all my files and go on sabbatical. So if I never came back, it wouldn't matter. And then literally two weeks after I stopped work, we went into lockdown. And I was like, oh, my gosh. So I told work I wanted to sort out my house because I'd moved house on my own with two kids. So I was in slight chaos at home and spend more time with the children and I was like oh I'm caged with the kids now <laughs> yeah, this isn't too much. quite what I was anticipating <laughs> um, and and then that started a bit of a mini existential crisis in lockdown because I wasn't a solicitor wasn't a mm. wife anymore I hadn't got my head around being a widow I didn't mm. like that label at all mm. um, and I didn't really know and I'd forgotten because I think I think so often we roller coaster in life and yeah. we're so busy on the roller coaster, we don't step off and look at it no. and see how, what happened at the ups and what happened at the downs and how we reacted. And I think I'd gone through that roller coaster so much and I'd ended up in a very, very, very busy place. Being a military spouse isn't easy at the best of times. Having a job that was quite stressful was quite a big deal on top. Our kids are quite dyslexic, so they need a lot of help and support. Mm. And and it was just quite hard work. And I look mm. back on it and I just think, God, blimey, that was just really, really, really hard work. And I'd been so busy, I'd forgotten about mm. how to have fun. And I know yeah. that sounds really bizarre, but in lockdown, someone said, well, you've got to do what makes you happy. And I was like, mm. I don't know what to do. Yes. <laughs> yeah. What, what do I do for Emma? Like not as a mum, not as a carer, not as a widow, not as a spouse, not as a solicitor. What do I do for me that actually has fun? I was like, I don't actually know. Wow. I've totally forgotten how to have fun. Yeah. So how did you go about exploring that? I went, well, one of my children went through a bit of a dip, a little bit like you not enjoying it because the grief came up. One of my Mm. kids, a lot of grief came up for her. Mm. So there was a quite lot of handholding and TLC or I was having and the homeschooling that I like you Mm -hmm. wasn't a natural at (laughs) for me anyway. And certainly didn't get the authority and respect from my kids. (laughs) Likewise. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but um, but yeah, so I went back to coaching and counselling 
yeah. and just started to explore like mm. and actually what really helped me was to trying to look back at what did the child love yes. because how often when we're an adult do we forget what we really loved doing when we were a kid mm. yeah definitely you leave all that behind don't you yeah yeah, yeah. I know it is it's really interesting isn't it and I think there is in in these huge losses that we experience in in life you know especially the loss of a, a spouse a life partner it does leave us with a lot of unanswered questions we don't know how to be or where we fit in anymore but that almost kind of creates an opportunity for us to invest in ourselves doesn't it and and do the counseling do the coaching join the clubs you know just figure out who you are a little bit and invest in you because when do we ever do that you know like you say we're kind of just on the, the roller coaster of life aren't we and and we we just we just keep going without ever really sort of stepping off and thinking hmm, it's you know is this working is this what I want um and you know for me in my story it's it's kind of been life-changing being able to you know, take the opportunity, invest in me, discover who I am and, and what I want. It sounds like you've done something very similar yeah. um, and, and, and creating someone in within yourself and something, your life, that feels meaningful and fulfilling you know and really thinking about what you want that to look like and of course when you start out and you ask the questions you've no idea do you you're like I don't know I don't know I have no clue (laughs) but you know by sort of taking that step and just starting to think about it you you do you find them don't you the the answers come to you eventually it's not immediate and I think it takes a long time but it, it does come so where do you find your fun and your joy now then? Well, I love traveling, yeah. which is really hard at the moment. Mm. So it's more a matter of little mini adventures. I used to love horse riding and my mm. kids are massively into horses. Oh. And that was part of our forever home dream. And I did get really upset that I couldn't do it for them. But actually, I can do it, but in a different way. Yeah. Um, and I love art and I really enjoy writing. So, yeah. And yeah. I go, I love outside, mm. running, dog walking, being just being outdoors. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. I think there's something very restorative and nurturing, isn't there, about being in nature. It's it certainly helped me through through my grief hugely. And, and now is, is my first port of call. You know, if I'm ever having a, a, a day, a moment, it's like, right, I just need to get out in nature. As long as it's not pouring with rain. I'm not so good with it. <laughs> it's too wet. Fair weather nature person. So you, you kind of talked about um, the, the military and, and how they supported you after Simon died. I mean, did, how has that support kind of helped you through? Do you still get it? How is your relationship? Because obviously being a military wife it must be you know it's a large part of your life I'm assuming Mm. how how have you sort of navigated the changes there and and how do you I mean do you are you still 
in touch with the military and, and how they work? How do, how do you sort of figure that out? Yeah, it's a really hard one. And actually, I think it was one of the biggest things that hit me in lockdown, mm. because when I met my husband, I was actually in the TA myself. Mm-hmm. So military was and I think that's what often people forget when they see a spouse is actually whether the spouse actually had any links to that herself before mm. she met whoever she's ended up with or he and um and for me that biggest secondary loss was the military like I sat in lockdown just thinking you know like the one thing I want the kids to do is to remember who their daddy was and the one thing he was as well as fun and devoted and inspirational and the rest of it and at times very annoying because we can't just put them on a pedestal um but um but was he was a Royal Marine and he was very proud of being a Royal Marine and he loved being a Royal Marine. And mm-hmm. I've got the most amazing group of what I call my bootneck misses. So bootnecks, Royal Marine, misses other half. Um, mm. uh, but actually, funnily enough, a lot of them, their spouses have left forces now. Um, so although it is a kind of link, mm-hmm. it's kind of not a link as well. Um, and um and the help that I'd had immediately afterwards had petered out because I hadn't needed it so much. Um, I get Simon's pension, but anyone who pays into a pension or has life policies would get that regardless of what job mm-hmm. they have. Um, but I started to make some connections back into the military. Um, I linked back into the RMA. Um, I also um, joined something called Milspo, which is military spouses and other halves who are in business. I'm kind of their token wi- widow. Okay. Um, but I'm, they've taken me on as an ambassador now. Um, but the whole idea of that is keeping your own business running alongside your military spouses, other half. And that has been a lovely connection for me for the military. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then within the organization of Way, um, I've they've got loads of subgroups. And I joined Way soon after Simon died. And then I let it wane because I just didn't feel like I belonged. In that big peer-to-peer group mm. um, and then I suddenly realized they had loads of subgroups it wasn't one for the military and um, so I set one up and I really like it like around remembrance we had a few people saying oh gosh which side do I wear the medals and you oh. know they're kind of questions that are so important yes. to some people but you don't want to ask the wrong person and get the wrong advice and and the answer actually is whatever suits you is the right way to do it is mm. really the answer but just to know how other people do it is really amazing and mm. um, so I set that up and then the other thing was the children and I was chatting to some Millspo ladies and saying how the kids were struggling and they said well have you heard of Scotty's and I was like mm, I've heard of Scotty's and I'm like, oh we'll put you in contact with another widow so I chatted to this other widow and I said how are you coping in lockdown she went well for the kids Scotty's mm. have been amazing mm. I said but your husband died of cancer and mm. she said yeah and I was like oh my gosh I thought it was for only for and this is totally me mm. because when I then went into the cupboard to try and find his military number and the stuff I needed to fill in the forms in there sat two Scotty's forms so oh. someone on day one had obviously said this is a fabulous charity it's for the kids but something in my head wasn't mm. quite right mm. and I felt so guilty because they'd missed out on a good number of years of support from Scotty's that have now and it's just captured their imagination you know it's all about you were saying about groups and I think mm. it's just about finding the group that you it's like a jigsaw puzzle finding the group that you feel like you fit yes 
Yeah. Because people can offer you groups, but if you don't fit, it actually might make you worse yeah. rather than better. Yeah. And the kids, I tried some local charities for bereaved kids and stuff like that. And the kids just couldn't, it wasn't palatable. They just, they just didn't get it. They didn't fit. And then Scotties and they're just there. They love it. Um, you just need to mention Scotties and they love it. And Scotties remember remembrance. They remember Simon's birthday. They remember Christmas and they've got a Christmas party. We're going to go to our first face-to-face Christmas party um, which is really exciting so that is it is and that's that's scotty's little soldiers isn't it and is that are they i mean is that something the military have kind of created the story is absolutely inspirational and i think you'll love it it comes from a widow who has created something that has just been a lifeline for other people. And I think it really shows that in our grief, some amazing things can happen. And so her husband was um, Corporal Lee Scott and he, I think this is the reason I had this image in my mind, Um, but he did die out in Afghanistan. I think it's Afghanistan. Um, And um, when she was grieving, she was really worried about the kids. Like she could find support for her, but she was really struggling to find support specifically for bereaved military kids. Um, And then someone took them away on holiday. And when they were away on holiday, she saw her kids smiling happily for the first time ever. So initially the charity was set up to provide holidays for bereaved forces kids because she wanted to provide those smiles it makes me feel quite emotional just yeah. talking about it I think she's so inspirational and um, but find those smiles that she'd seen on her kids faces and that's how it was started she went to her family and said I think I want to set up a charity and I think they probably all went <laughs> oh wow that's amazing what a wonderful thing to do and what a great way to honor your person as well you know to set something up like that that and and to give back you know that is that is truly kind of finding meaning isn't it in in your loss and and giving back and and helping others I love these stories and you're right it really does highlight doesn't it that when your partner dies or you have a significant loss in life it feels like the end of your life doesn't it you cannot imagine ever feeling happiness peace contentment joy anything again because the the pain that the physical the emotional mental pain that that we experience it's just so consuming isn't it that you you just cannot see any sort of glimmer of hope or light and even sometimes when you meet others that have kind of walked your path a little that, that kind of a saying you know it's going to be all right that you feel like I can't I can't see it I don't know how you can say that or feel that because it's really hard isn't it to, but you know as we sort of go through our grieving process and navigate our way forwards I suppose there are things aren't there that we discover you, you know and there's there's parts of us that I think we discover as well that we never knew existed you know it 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 does shape us it doesn't have to define us but it definitely shapes who we become and the choices that we make and some truly wonderful things have happened for people haven't they as, as, as a result really of losing their life partner and that's not to say you're, you're glad that that's happened um, but you can appreciate 
the good that that has come out of it because good can come from bad mm. um and, and I think sometimes acknowledging that and, and seeing that in others it, it is it, that's it's just so inspirational isn't it it really mm. is inspirational so how are your girls doing now uh, my elder daughter is really the psychology of it is absolutely fascinating. My elder daughter's slightly taken on a co-parenting role. Mm. So I'm just desperate for her to be a 13-year-old and <laughs> to let me do the parenting. Yeah. Um, and my younger daughter um was phenomenally close, but also mm. very little. Mm. She was three when he was diagnosed mm. and six when he died. And she's the one who found lockdown really hard. Mm. And then as bad luck would have it she's now transitioned from primary to um, senior school Mm. and um, that change has been really hard for her and I do think that one of the things that we have to be aware of when we have got a huge loss is that change can trigger stuff and she has found that change Mm. has got so mixed up with her grief and the realization that there's not a lot she can remember about daddy anymore um and that's quite heartbreaking really mm. Mm. it is it's sad isn't it because they they are trying to process so much and sometimes it's hard for us to articulate what it is we're feeling or thinking or, or needing in any given moment and for our children you know it's almost just an impossibility isn't it and and we're kind of looking to them sometimes for answers and they don't have them they they don't know um and they're trying to to find their way through it in the best way that they can and there is a lot of support out there but you know like we were saying before weren't we it's 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 the constant reminders of the loss for your children isn't it that just continue to to show up in everyday life and you know that's something that is going to be there as well for the rest of their lives and that's hard isn't it that's hard kind of looking at your children feeling that pain and you know as a mum you want to take it away don't you you want to make everything better but you know you can't and it's just it's just so heartbreaking isn't it Mm -hmm. so heartbreaking It is. It's hard. But, you know, there are some wonderful charities out there that that help. And it sounds like the day that you're going to in the beginning of December will be lovely because, you know, they're around other children that have lost a parent, too. And, and that can help normalize it for them, mm. which I think is important. You know, hugely. Yeah, it is. Hugely it's hugely important. Mm. So just, you know, I think it's important as well to talk about the caregiving side. I you know, my husband died suddenly um but through my sort of nursing career I've nursed people through illnesses and you know been with people and tried to keep them comfortable and you know the things you do when somebody's dying um but it's one of the 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 biggest things I think when you lose someone you love that that caregiving trauma that side of it you know and as much as when we get married and you sort of say in in sickness and in health and all you don't you you don't envisage that actually one day you will be a full-time carer for your spouse and and even in that even if you were to think about it you've no real idea what that consists of um and what it entails you you know and the change in your relationship and and just the heaviness of the caregiving side Mm. um 
so for you, how did you deal with, with that side of, of things in, in Simon's illness? I had to be a bit manipulative, if I'm honest. Okay. <laughs> um, because as a Royal Marine, he was quite macho and I can cope and I can do this. So there was a lot of behind the scenes prep that I had to do. Mm. He wanted me to the very end to be his wife. Mm. He never wanted me to be his nurse and his carer. And that was blatantly obvious mm. from day one, the whole way through. Mm. So there was a lot of running around in the background and trying to preempt what was going to happen and work out how it was going to be. So if we were going places, I would have to check what the food was going to be like and whether it was going to be okay so that he would have an option that he might be able to eat. I had to be really aware of when he was really tired so that he didn't have to say in front of everyone else, I'm really tired. Instead, it just so happened that things brought to an end and all the rest of it. I mean, the prime example was in the hospice at the end is that he'd lost a phenomenal amount of weight. He was skeletal at the end, which was a huge shock for some of his, like, I mean, he was six foot and rah, you know, yeah. like, yeah. Uh, there was quite a lot of him when he was fit and healthy. Yeah. So people who hadn't seen him for a few years, it was really quite a big shock. And one of his friends came over and, and was desperate to talk about him. The kids were around and I was like, I'll talk in the car. I'm like babysitter's coming over. When we get in the car, it's just you and me. I talk then. Got in the car. I was still uh, reversing out the drive. And I found a recent picture of Simon and I hand it over and I went, just look at that. I want you to appreciate that that is what he looks like mm. because I knew that it would be a massive shock. And afterwards he said to me, I'm so pleased you did that oh. because it meant that when I saw him, I still saw the sparkle in his eyes. I still saw the smile. I still saw the bloke he really was and how thin he was wasn't such a shock mm. um and um I would often be at the hospice when people arrived to kind of break the ice and crack a few jokes so that they got used to the fact that he was very thin and very tired and then I would magically disappear because the van needed a, it was a car then but the car needed some fuel or I needed to get something from the kids for the shops or something mm. and I knew that he had about 20 minute attention span before he started to fall asleep again so I um had a coloring book but it was of places around the world with the idea because he had lots of friends all around the place and who traveled with him places mm. and so I when I broke the ice I would say oh you know if he falls asleep pick one of those color it in for the kids write a note about why you've picked that page and then he'll wake up and you can have a bit more of a conversation um, and it, I've still got that coloring book and half of them are like only a tiny fractions colored in but that's almost sweeter Aww. it's really lovely but then I would magically reappear when I knew that he probably had enough and break the ice again so that it, the goodbye would be okay because for some people it would potentially be the last time they'd see him and um, so there was a lot of background and, and I get quite upset when people say oh well, he didn't throw up very much well no he didn't throw up in front of you very much but at home he threw up a lot mm. um because he really struggled to eat and at home he would challenge himself with the food that he was eating but he was such a proud bloke he didn't want to throw up in front of people so he would always pick food that he knew would be less of a struggle when he was out and about with other people mm. so yeah and and also I was sly with the food because obviously he was losing weight so cream went into everything and those complan supplements went into everything and mm. I had to slightly make sure that me and the kids didn't end up the size of a house because 
<laughs> because like everything had to have extra in it so that I could keep some weight on him god it's like you say it's so much to think about isn't there so much to think about and and even with people wanting to come and see him there's probably that nervousness from them as well like what, what do I do what do I say should I talk about this do I talk about that and, and you're probably sort of managing that side of things as well sort of helping people with the it was amazing I felt like I did a lot of counselling and it made me realise where my strengths lie mm. um but you know I had some people who are phenomenal in their professional lives like Simon mm. was quite high up as an officer so some of the people visiting him were fairly impressive people who on a sober work day I'd probably be quite scared of but I was the expert on Simon and I'll never forget one of them coming to see him literally about 24 36 hours before he died and went out to the garden and he gave me a huge hug and he looked down at me and he went he's going to die and I just had to say he's a very sick man he's not going to live for very much longer um and and look after other people's emotions as much but it kind of helped me because I don't like feeling like a victim all the time and having Mm. the TLC so you know like when I went to counselling I could be the collapsed person and fall to pieces but actually with everyone else it helped me Mm. to help them Mm -hmm. and it helped me to be a bit stronger Mm. and who did who did you lead on in those times who was you obviously went to the counsellor but did you have someone holding you up my parents have always been pretty my sister have always been pretty amazing we're mm. a very close family mm. um, and there's certainly no lack of love amongst us all it's it, I feel very lucky to have parents who are still happily married together in their mid-80s and a sister all of whom we all live within about a two hour radius. Mm. Um, so they're amazing. And, and I have to say, being part of the military, you are part of a family yeah. and the community. And then the other community that I was part of is my local town. And um, the mums who were like school friend mums mm. um, started a babysitting circle so that when Si was in the hospice, I could go and see him in the evenings. Um, and they literally, they had a whatsapp group that i wasn't party to and they would rolling work out who was coming to babysit in the evening so that i could feed the kids be with them and then when it was time for bedtime someone would turn up read them a story and i could disappear off to the hospice to be with simon oh that's so lovely what a lovely thing to do i think sometimes when really bad things happen it does give you a bit more faith in human nature because And it's sometimes the most surprising people who Mm. are the most helpful. And yet some people who you think would love Mm. you and care for you, send you a text message saying, what do the kids want for Christmas? And you just think. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. Yeah, like really? (laughs) It is. It's very surprising, isn't it? Very surprising. So obviously with, with, you know, what you've been through with losing Simon and your, you know, your previous career as an end of life solicitor. How do you kind of now advise people on end of life? What what do you say? Uh, because I just, I don't believe 
we have these conversations enough. We, we don't talk about death. We don't talk about our wishes. You know, the amount of people, I, I always do like a, a fears um, session in my groups. And so many people say, I'm scared of dying because, you know, I don't know what my kids are not. And, and I'm like, well, have you got things in place? And they're like, no. And I get it because it's scary. We don't want to have to sit with these things. And I remember sitting down with Simon with a, you know, a, a financial advisor, a solicitor and doing our wills and finances. And I was deeply uncomfortable having the conversation that we had I was like really do we need to do this my god am I glad we did you know because I well I can't even begin to imagine if we hadn't and things weren't in place for if the worst happened um but it's hard isn't it it's really hard so you know taking all that into consideration what do you now kind of advise people or invite people to, to start thinking about really when it comes to either their own death or you know if you you are in a, a relationship with someone how do you manage that that side of things if the worst were to happen it's something that I feel really passionate about and I've slightly lost the thread a little bit mm. if I'm honest because when I stopped being a lawyer and started to train as a counsellor um, I was passionate that I wanted to try and mix the counselling and getting people to talk about the end of life paperwork but you're right the problem is, is I keep getting disillusioned. I've done a few talks on end of life from my perspective as a widow. So not mm. just the legal paperwork, what it's really like. And the take up is so poor because people just don't want to do it, mm. um, which is really heartbreaking because I know what happens when mm. you don't do it, mm. um, which makes me really, really upset. But I, um, as a lawyer, I used to always say that those legal documents that you put in place, so the wills, the powers of attorney, the life policies, the critical illness, they're actually, you think you're done, you think you've put a big tick in a box and you're done, but they're actually the backbone. Mm. You need the meat on the bones. Mm. You need all the extra that goes around it because does anyone know whether you want to die at home or in a hospice? Do you have some music you want played? Do you actually want no music? If you've got people you want to be with you, have you got people that actually will piss the hell out of you and you mm. don't want them anywhere near you mm. you know we plan for our births we do these amazing plans for our births and I don't think any of them actually happen mm. but what they do do is they give options to people mm. and mm. they give a bit of security to people and they give a fallback and a plan b to people on what you really would like to happen and I think it's twofold really so it's thinking about that end of life like if I were suddenly in a really nasty car accident and I'm in hospital and I'm suddenly really poorly what do I want people to do to make me more comfortable so that I have the best death possible and I believe in the best test possible I've watched a not very nice death of a 24 year old who slipped into a coma and then subsequently died in the hospital and that was horrendous and that was one of my biggest fears because that was the only death I'd witnessed and I was really worried that would be what happened to my husband my husband's death was still a huge trauma because I think death always will be a trauma because yeah. if you love someone watching them die is horrendous but it, you know he died with a smile on his face surrounded by people who loved him and we could potentially have done more but with the knowledge we had at the time there is nothing more we could have done mm. and that's where I think you've got to find your peace on that mm. and, and then you need to park the death bit and think about right well when I'm not here yes I've done my will but actually, 
God, I just don't even know where to start. But, you know, what age do I want the kids to learn to drive? Do I want them to have a contribution to buying a car? Will I pay the insurance that they have to pay for the car? Do I want them to go to university? Do I actually not give a toss if they go to university? Do I want them to have all the money straight away or do I want them to wait? Or am I happy for it to be advanced for certain things like a deposit on a house or a this or a that? You know, what are my ethos? What are what are my what what makes me tick? What do I really want the kids to have as a motto, as a thing that comes from me that they can live by? Mm. All of that is the meat that goes on the bones. Mm. And I believe really passionately in that. But I find that it's only people who have had a horrible experience mm. and have been left not knowing and been left with huge question marks. Like I am going to be really specific about music and readings at my funeral because my husband gave me so many instructions, but not one piece of music and not one reading. Wow. Mm. But you learn from your mistakes. And mm. I'm hoping that someday when I have a bit more time, mm. I can share a bit more of our mistakes and what I've witnessed and using my legal knowledge and my counselling and my fascination with mental health and the fact that I've lived with it and help people really work out how to do it better than I did it. Yeah and I think do you know I think I don't know if you'll agree with me on this but I I you know I've recently done David Kessler's um, grief educators program which was just brilliant and he talks about you you know the more meaningful the death the more meaningful the grief and and it helps us in our grieving process you know and like you say all death is traumatic but the less traumatic we can make it by talking about these things understanding things knowing that we're giving our person what they want we're we're, you know making sure their wishes are carried out we're playing the music we're reading the the readings we are carrying on their values their beliefs all of that kind of stuff it helps us in our grieving process to feel like we're able to honor them in in the best way that we can when we haven't got that information that's really hard isn't it because you're you're guessing and you're then you're always questioning yourself and then you're feeling guilty because you didn't do this and you didn't do that and it's it's kind of it's it's layering your your grief with with more discomfort and And I can understand why families shatter at that point Mm. because you've then got a point where you've got people who can remember the 12 year old because they knew them so well until the point where they went to school so they feel like they know them really 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 well you've got the person who's the spouse or the partner and they feel like they know them really well and you've got no instructions and I can totally understand why Mm. because everyone wants what's best and and they've only got their own experience to speak from yeah um and, and it's I hard. Think that that's really hard. Yeah, it is because you know my my husband Simon, his his dad had had died. I can't eight years maybe before he'd died, maybe ten. Um, and his dad's ashes were scattered somewhere where they used to live. And Simon had always said to his mum, I want my ashes scattered there as well when I go. You know, and that kind of was said. But of course, then Simon and I you know had kids and had and then we we did actually talk quite openly weirdly about you know we had all these discussions I guess maybe because of me being a nurse and a midwife it just yeah these kind of chats um and I'm I'm just fascinated by them anyway but 
you know, and in that he, he would say, I, you know, I don't want my ashes there anymore. I kind of want them to, to go somewhere that would be better for the girls, you know, because that place would mean nothing to, to, to the girls. And but he hadn't had that discussion with his mum, of course. And then he died. And then his mum's clinging on to the fact that his ashes are going to where his dad is. And I'm going, it's not actually what he wanted, but she's got nothing to go on apart from me saying it. And I could have been lying, do, do, you know, and it, it did cause friction. Very luckily, we were okay. We figured it out. But, it, you know, there are moments in time, along with many other things, that cause this kind of disconnect because you're, people are clinging on to the one thing that they think they know about that person and, and they think that they know best about that person and that there is, you know, you loggerheads with people, don't you? And it, a lot of the time this is where, you know, relationships do break down. And I think if we can have these conversations or people can leave behind instructions, wishes, guidelines, it just helps those that I think are left behind navigate it really in, in a way that feels better to them. Um, but it's it's not easy. It's not easy having those, those conversations. And I have to say as well is that like... <sighs> I, I literally I mentioned the word in-law to other people and they've already mm. got their own issues mm. about in-law I'm mm. very lucky my in-laws are really good people yeah. um, and I also believe so passionately that they are the only people mm. that can help me tell the children what their daddy yeah. did when he was little yes um, and to me that is priceless yeah. and to me I'll move mountains in order to make sure that, that can still happen yeah. um but it is so difficult to navigate relationships that were not necessarily your relationships you know like Simon was always the one who used to arrange us going up to see his family and all the rest mm -hmm. of it and and suddenly it's my job to arrange it and different families have different ways of communicating and and then you can start to overthink it like oh my gosh do I bombard them too much or oh my gosh if I don't communicate with them do they think I'm not interested anymore and yeah. and, and all of the rest of it whereas actually they're probably just really grateful to see their grandkids yeah definitely I know but we do we overthink it all don't we and start second guessing everything because it is so so complicated sometimes so obviously, you, you know, we started off, we, we've talked about you being a end of life solicitor, what that's brought to you, your widow, you your kind of touched on your, your trainee counselling, but you've also got your, your rainbow hunting and your, your wannabe author. I, I know you're sort of busy sort of creating something amazing for, for people to, to read <laughs> in the future. And it will be amazing. Of course it will. So you know, I really like to talk about the good that comes out of, of the bad. You know, I like to give people a bit of hope and posit positivity because it does feel like it's the end, doesn't it? You, you know, when these things happen to us, you just cannot see past it. You think that your best days are behind you. Nothing's ever going to be good again. And, and you're never going to find any peace, contentment, joy, love in, in your life. Understandably, we, we've all been there. But, you know, as time moves on and we do the work I, I'm a huge believer and we have to kind of do the work I, I don't think time alone is enough for us and we, we have to to make those choices and take those steps but good things can come so for you what what good things have have come out of of your loss what what have you learned what has it taught you and what has it given to you there's quite a lot actually I wonder if I'll be able to cover it all I think the most important thing is that I 
would do anything to have my kids stabbed back mm. and that goes without saying mm. however you were saying about all the work we do and actually one of the things that's come out of all the work for me is I think I've reconnected with a part of me that's been missing since I was probably about 11 years old um, and the right really authentic me the, mm. the true me and I'm not frightened anymore of saying actually that doesn't suit me and the kids I'm really sorry we can't make it mm. rather than trying to move mountains for other people um, and so being uh, rediscovering me um, which started in lockdown and I think will always be a lifelong lesson because mm. I think we change and I yeah. think over time things change and um, that's been a definite positive I think the other thing is learning that my keep busy coping strategy is entirely faulty <laughs> <laughs> love like, it <laughs> like it's it served its purpose and I'm sure if I have any more trauma in my life it will come straight back in and it will yeah. serve a purpose again but actually we need to take our foot off the gas and we need to pause because actually we can't change yesterday. Yesterday's happened. We have no influence on tomorrow. Whatever mm. happens tomorrow happens. But right now we can enjoy and mm. right now we can be happy. And mm. one of the things that I've realized really strongly, that thing you were saying about heartbreak. Oh my gosh, I had totally not anticipated. I knew that he was going to die. So there was no surprise in it at all. I'd known it for two and a half years. It had been worrying me for two and a half years. But I was so shocked when he died. And that shock was not just about the emotions, but I physically felt heartbroken. And I don't think I can put into words how or why, but but you carry a little part of that grief with you all the time. So you suddenly go somewhere and you do something, you think, God, Simon would love this. He'd be so proud of this. And in that moment, your heart is breaking, and yet you're loving it. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't realized that pain and joy can totally and utterly coexist. Mm -hmm. And actually, I think we mentioned earlier, you know, like how often are we cold, wet and miserable and someone gives us a cup of tea and that yeah. tea is so sweet and so lovely and so amazing yeah. life's not perfect you know and it's enjoying it for what it is mm. um, and enjoying all the wrinkles and all the bits when I did a eulogy for Simon I specifically mentioned some of the stuff that really irritated me about him yes. <laughs> because I think life's just not perfect no no um, and I think the other thing is changing career as well. I still don't know quite where I'm going. I'm on a path, but I enjoy the path. Yeah. The destination will work itself out mm. and hopefully it'll become clear in time. But I'm enjoying the journey. I'm training as a counsellor. I've still got a little bit to do with law because I'm on the national board at Solicitors for the Elderly. Um, and I'm having great fun helping them out doing some new ideas. And then I'm writing my book, which I hope will help other people. But that's been a life lesson in itself, the, the whole writing experience. So, yeah. yeah, huge. Absolutely yeah. huge. But I, you know, I love everything you've just touched on there. And I, and I was talking to a client earlier about it, that we can get quite fixated on the destination, can't we? Where we're heading and I'll be happy when I get here and I'll feel happier when that's happened or when I've sorted this out. And and that's really, you know, I was relatable. I get it. That was me. But we do. We have to find ways of enjoying the process, of enjoying the now, and and allowing, 
you know, that to take us to where we're meant to be, to where we're going to be going. Because if we can find the joy in the now, if we can make the right decisions for us today, you know, that does, you know, lead us down the right path, doesn't it? It affects everything moving forwards and, and it's believing in that. So rainbow hunting obviously you've got you've got the website haven't you um yeah. which is is that rainbow hunting it's literally rainbowhunting.co.uk .co.uk yeah. i'll put all your details in in the show notes so people can yeah. find you um and there's a lot of information on there isn't there there's obviously some some blogs as well and you know are you hoping that that will become more in time is that something that you want it to grow yeah, so initially I started it because I suddenly realised if I want to do a book, I need people who quite like the idea and who mm. trust me enough to part with a bit of money to purchase a book. So it's about building my newsletter. I do a monthly and I only do a monthly newsletter because mm. I cannot stand being spammed every mm. week by people. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really is only once a month. Um, and it's got all the, the links to the most recent articles I've uploaded to the website in it. Um, and like for National Beef Awareness Week, I've done a few downloads for that. Mm. Um, so at the moment, my website is really just providing people with a little bit of information that I think might help them. So some mm. of it's legal, some of it's emotional, some of it's some of the mental health stuff. I've got a big resources section, which I'm constantly adding to of places that people can go for help mm. um, and some of the stuff that I get involved in. Um, and then I'd still love to do a challenge someday where I try to encourage people to sort their paperwork out. Um, mm. I was going to do one in the autumn, but because my daughter was struggling with the change up to senior school, I've postponed it. Um, mm. But the primary focus at the moment is the book. But I think that the um, website will probably become the counselling, life coaching. Mm. And, and I'm very happy to speak to people on life coaching perspective straight away mm. um, and, and mainly just signpost and listen, um, yeah. you know, um, prime example you know maybe they're a widow and they could do with one of your group courses mm. or mm. something but mm. I think sometimes we click into people and it's personality driven and we like someone yeah. and then if they recommend somewhere we know mm. where we might be able to go to get a bit more help yeah yeah you're right and I think you know touching on what you said there it's, it's about connections isn't it and it's about stories that that resonate and I think you know, with your your military connection, there's obviously a, a lot out there. And what I love, I think, is that you couldn't necessarily find what you wanted, especially within way. So you created it, you know, and I think that's just, I love that because it's, you know, if you can't find what it is you're looking for, it's not there, create it, which is essentially what I've done. You know, I wanted me in my journey and and, and it wasn't there. So I, I kind of thought, okay, well, let's let's figure this out. Let, let's find a way of, of doing that. And I think that's it. what I've done with rainbow hunting as yeah. well, is that I wanted what rainbow hunting gives, yes. you know, a bit of information on the legal and the practical stuff. Yeah. You know, and for example, if people wanted to do a will, but there was a part of doing the will that they were really stuck with, mm. I'd be happy to talk it through with them so that by the time they go to a solicitor, they know what they're asking the solicitor yes. to do yes and I've had that so often you know like maybe they can't decide who the guardian is mm. or do you know who to make the executor or actually you know what does that mean and I can't give legal advice because I'm not practicing as a solicitor but I can help on a practical basis yeah 
Um, and that is huge because I remember after Simon died having to do all of these things, you know, and just I didn't understand it. I'd done it with Simon, but he'd kind of guided the process. I just mm-hmm. kind of turned up. Um, and when it's down to you and all those decisions, and I didn't understand a lot of the terminology. I, you know, they, they speak in another language. They write in a, <laughs> I'm like, can you not write this in just normal, plain English? Because even when I said to the solicitor what I wanted and then what I got back in my will, I was like, does this say what I wanted though? Because I can't, can't fathom what you've actually written here because it's just weird. Um, and it's that side of it, isn't it? And then you're intimidated because you don't want to look stupid and kind of go, oh, you know, what? <laughs> so having that there, I think, again, is just such valuable support. And, and the signposting as well. You yeah. know, I believe really strongly that if you're going to get a will, you need mm. to go to someone who's regulated. Yeah. Because, and it's not... It's not necessarily because people who are unregulated are no good. I'm sure you get some very high quality unregulated mm. will writers. But the difference is that when people are regulated, they've got a huge liability mm. insurance. So God mm. forbid an accident or a mistake does happen. They're backed up by all the support of being properly insured and all the rest mm. of it. Um, and mm. also purely by the fact that they're regulated. Yes, they might not be firing on all steam and they might not be the best solicitor you've ever had, but they will have done the exams. They will have done the, you know, mm qualifications that get them to Mm. that point um and i i'm watching fascinated the whole will writing thing because your will is the only legal document that says when you die who's having your assets Mm. and the whole concept that you can go to wh smith for 15 quid and get a piece of paper and write it yourself i mean i wouldn't cut my hair myself so why (laughs) would i want to do that you know what i mean that's so true isn't it and in it's information like that you, you know that I don't know I didn't know that about solicitors being regulated you, you know people might say make sure they're regulated but I don't know why I'm making sure they're regulated it's being informed isn't it and and we're not and sometimes we don't even need to know what we need to be informed about because we know so little and the other thing I find absolutely fascinating just very boringly from a legal perspective but also introducing the mental health is when you are grieving a loss Mm. you are actually vulnerable you know your thoughts Mm. are vulnerable your emotions are vulnerable Mm. and you you could potentially be easily persuaded so actually you need a solicitor Mm. who works with vulnerable people Mm. and I know that a lot of widows want to I mean I certainly thought that I was like a knight in shining armor and there was nothing vulnerable about me at all but I couldn't have been more wrong and mm. um, for me personally um, but I think it's really 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 important that people realize like for example solicitors for the elderly isn't just for the elderly they deal with vulnerable adults mm-hmm. so if you've got a child with a disability mm-hmm. you want to make sure that the person who writes your will understands all the complexities that come with benefits and disabilities and all the rest of it mm-hmm. and that might get totally missed otherwise oh, see interesting again things you don't know and don't understand because it's not it's not that clear is it you know and there's there's so much to it there's just so much information there Emma there really is no I I love it I think you you know the more we can help people the better you know just understanding what is out there but just before we go you know if you could go back and sort of offer yourself one piece of advice to to that that new raw widow after Simon died and and kind of you know thinking about where you are now what would you say to yourself 
that's easy <laughs> I would say ask for help brilliant because people actually want to help you and in a really bizarre way you are helping them mm. by asking for help because they yeah. want to help you they just don't know how yes and it doesn't even matter if you say I need help but I don't know what I need help with that's mm. the start but just to acknowledge you know that Charlie McMansley thing with the what's the most courageous thing you've ever said help like yeah. I 100% it is so difficult to show our vulnerability so and it is difficult. so difficult to ask for help. And mm. I know that I needed help. Mm. Um, you know, I was surviving on about four hours sleep a night initially after Simon died. I needed help just to make sure I didn't have an accident on the M5, you know, yeah. it's, um, but you're so in it, you can't see it, but sometimes you do know there's a niggle and you can mm. feel that niggle and it's listening because sometimes your body knows your mm. body is trying to tell you mm. that you need to ask someone for help, whether it's a GP, whether it's a friend, whether it's going to counseling, I don't, mm. anybody, but, people are generally I fundamentally believe people are kind and they want to help and Mm. they would be so relieved to know that there was one small act of something whether it's cleaning your gutters or yeah picking the kids up from school walking the dog but they want to help they do they do and people feel helpless in it don't they and by guiding them it 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 helps everyone you, you know and it shows that that self-kindness and that self-compassion we don't have to do it all alone and in fact we can't we can't heal in isolation we just can't you know we have to lean on others and it's not permanent you're not going to need all that help forever you will find your feet again eventually but like you say take all the help you can get reach out to to whoever you need to reach out to that's fantastic advice I think that's the other thing that I put hand in hand with that though is exactly what you just said which I hadn't realized until I started to do some training with crews Mm. but it is a fact it's not you it's a fact that grief does not heal in isolation we don't heal in isolation we are social beings and Mm -hmm. we need others around us to help us to heal 100 percent, 100 percent. yeah exactly and i think we give ourselves a hard time for thinking that we can't do it on our own you're not supposed to no (laughs) that's not that's not part of the plan surround yourself with anyone and everyone that wants to to kind of help prop you up because I literally was carried people picked me up and they carried me um for for the first year really and um I wouldn't be where I was now without that support um it's it's what we need and it's how we get through absolutely 100% Emma thank you so much I'm so excited to see where this journey takes you um the the book your your rainbow hunting your counseling and and all the good that you are doing I like I say we'll put all your details on to the show notes so people can reach out and contact you if they want to and and ask you any questions but it's been an absolute pleasure I've loved hearing about your story and Simon's story and yeah I really look forward to to see what's coming next thank you very much oh thanks Emma thank you so much for listening today on the widow podcast if you would like to find out more about how I can help you please visit my website www.karensutton.co.uk 
I would love to help you find your way forward to a brighter future. So get in touch, let's have a conversation and let's help you take back control and find a more positive way through your grief. I look forward to hearing from you.